I want to welcome you to our series where we are learning about what God says regarding our emotions. And today we come to the emotion that some have called the hidden pandemic of our time. Uh, you can't track it like COVID-19. You're never going to read any statistics on the news or on the internet about it. There won't be any updates from the government about it. But from an eternal perspective, this pandemic is far more damaging than COVID-19 because it has eternal consequences. And what I'm talking about is the emotion of shame. Now, we have all experienced shame at, at one time or another. Uh, maybe you can identify with this author who told a story of shame from his childhood. He wrote, because of my family's financial status, growing up, I, I never had the coolest name brand clothes. One year, my parents bought me two pair of Sears tough skin jeans for school, a brown pair and a blue pair. And if you know what he's talking about, you're of a certain age. If you don't know what he's talking about, you can ask someone who looks older than you, and they'll be able to explain it to you. He said, all the cool kids had Levi's with their silver or red tabs. I hated those kids. I had two pair of tough skins that had to last all year. Even worse, when my jeans started wearing out and getting holes in them, my mom, who was big into cross-stitching, made a huge Indian head on the leg of my brown jeans and an American flag on the rear end of my blue jeans. I can still hear the kids pledging allegiance to my rear end and calling me Tonto. I vowed that I would never have to face that kind of rejection again. Well, I think we all recognize that shame is a universal emotion. We, we've all experienced it in one way or another. But the truth is, so many of us, we really don't understand it. Many times, shame gets confused with guilt. And, and while they are closely related, that they aren't the same. Sometimes people see shame as guilt on steroids. So, so guilt is you know, when you feel bad about something, while shame is when you feel really, really bad about it. Now, guilt can often lead to shame, but shame is different. Guilt is focused on the what, while shame is focused on the who. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. And the Bible makes it clear that shame has no place in God's good creation. In fact, we, we run into shame on some of the very first pages of the Bible, this issue. James, uh, excuse me, Genesis 2.25 says that when God created Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And it is only when sin enters the world that shame shows up. And shame has been part of the human condition ever since. Now, we can experience shame because of something we have done. We can also feel shame because of something done to us. Many times, shame grows out of past trauma. Some of you struggle with shame today because of abuse in your past, whether it was verbal or emotional or physical or sexual. Maybe you grew up being told that you were worthless, that you would never amount to anything, that you, that you were damaged or defective in, in some way. And over time, these kind of words, well, they, they tend to lodge in our minds and they tend to become 
our reality, we really do begin to believe them. Sometimes our shame comes from something we have no control over, maybe, maybe a disability, maybe an unwanted attraction, maybe infertility. Christian counselor Ed Welch says, shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. I heard someone say that you can think of guilt like, like a stain on a shirt, and it can be washed, and, and even though it's sometimes hard to get out, you can usually get it out. But shame, this person said, is like a disfigured face. It feels like it's who you are. And even if you had nothing to do with what happened to your face, you still will feel ashamed. Shame is that voice that says, I am defective, I am damaged, I am broken, I am flawed, I am dirty, I am ugly, I am impure, I am disgusting. I am unlovable, I am weak, I am insignificant, I'm worthless. Nobody wants me. Many times, there are other people in our lives, sometimes a parent, sometimes a spouse, even sometimes a boss or a pastor, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They, they say things like that to us. You're stupid, you're lazy. You're a bad student. You're, you're never going to amount to anything. You're a tramp. You're a racist. You're not a good father. Brene Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston, and she specializes in the study of shame, and she has done a TED Talk. Maybe some of you have seen it on shame. It's one of the, the top five most viewed TED Talks of all time, and she says that, unfortunately, shame-based motivation often works, at least in the short run. In the long run, it can have devastating effects. A pastor named Craig Rochelle points out that shame often leads to three things. He says, first, it, it can lead to hopeless perfectionism. And so when we're feeling shame, we sometimes attempt to overcome our shame by achieving. We can't admit our failure because that would prove that shame is right, that, that we are actually not worthy. And so we have uh, obsessed over our performance. We're always striving, always working harder, always reaching beyond where we are, hoping that somehow we can prove that we are worthy, that we have value. A second thing is harsh criticism. And this can be of ourselves and others. And the reality is when we have shame, we dislike ourselves. And so we're really hard on ourselves. And uh, we become judgmental, not only of ourselves, but also of other people, especially when we see our faults in them. Our shame results in a kind of self-loathing. And it's kind of an interesting thing when we see people like this. Our reaction, it tends to be that they are self-righteous people. They're arrogant, prideful people. But the truth is deep down, they are deeply ashamed of themselves. A third thing is helpless feelings. Our shame can lead us to a place of deep pessimism. We're always thinking that the worst possible thing is what's going to happen. We'll find ourselves thinking things like, they're never gonna like me. This relationship, it's gonna fall apart just like all the others. I'm never gonna get the promotion. 
I'm never going to amount to anything. And we end up assuming the worst about ourselves because deep down we believe we are the worst and therefore we deserve the worst. Now today, I want us to walk through a biblical story of a woman consumed by shame. And I wanna show you how Jesus lifted her out of it. And we're gonna do this uh, in a different way than we usually do. We're gonna walk through the story we're gonna look at the insights in the story and then we're gonna draw some conclusions to apply to our lives at the end. And I want you to see as we do this that this story presents to us the answer for anyone who's struggling with shame, whether or not that shame is brought about by sin in our lives, something we have done, or suffering in our lives, something that has been done to us. Now we find this woman's story in the Gospel of Mark, the fifth chapter. It's verses 21 through 34. If you're not there yet, I'd encourage you to get there. And let's walk through the story and see what we can learn. Beginning in verses 21 and 22, here's what Mark writes. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus... He fell at his feet. Now, it's kind of interesting. This woman's story actually doesn't start with her. It starts with a man whose name is Jairus. And Mark is including this in his account because this man's story sets up a very important contrast. Jairus, he tells us, is a respected man. He's a synagogue leader. And he does something very unusual for someone in his position. In Jewish culture of that day, men like Jairus would never fall at someone's feet. They wore long robes. They walked slowly around, always dignified, never in a hurry. They were always in control of their emotions. But this man, he was desperate. Verses 23 and 24 tell us, he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. So you, you get this scene, just kind of imagine it in your mind. Jesus is walking along uh, the road and there's all of these people around him. They're pressed in on him, this kind of this rolling mob making its way you know, through the community. And then suddenly, Mark introduces a woman. She appears on the scene. Verses 25 and 26 say, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Subject to bleeding is a nice way to tell the reader that this woman had some kind of a disease that produced in her this never-ending menstrual flow. This meant, among other things, that she likely suffered from chronic severe pain this meant that she couldn't have children, and this also meant that she was always ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law. That would mean that she had to live her life in isolation, always away from people. Think about this, for 12 years. For 12 years, she was isolated so other people wouldn't become unclean. 
That meant no spiritual worship, no gathering with others to worship God. So she's a spiritual outcast. That means she was a social outcast as well because for 12 years, no one has touched her so that they would not become unclean. For 12 years, no one has hugged her or laid a hand on her to pray for her. She is isolated. She is lonely. Mark tells us she's also impoverished because she had spent all that she had on medical care, but nothing had worked. She'd only gotten worse. This word he uses that's translated suffered is the same word that's used in other parts of the gospel about Jesus receiving a scourging, this beating with a whip. And it it depicts for us the kind of suffering she's going through. Her suffering is like this ongoing, never-ending beatdown. Her her disease has beaten her down. And as a result of that, she's hopeless. See, all the dreams that she would have ever had for her life Dreams for marriage and for family and for friendship. All of those things are gone now. I want to give you one more observation about this woman, and it actually comes from a detail that's left out, and it's this. She's nameless. Nameless. Everybody knows the name Jairus, but Mark, he leaves this woman's name out because no one knows who she is anyway. And that's intentional. He he is showing us that this is a person who is hidden, who is like invisible to everyone. And that was probably as much by her choice as everyone else's shame tends to do that to people. It makes people hide. It it makes them stay away so they can avoid more humiliation. And and people don't want to be around her, but because of her shame, she doesn't want to be around them either. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be known. Now, again, contrast this with Jairus. He's a synagogue leader, but she's not allowed in the synagogue. He's respected But she's rejected. Everyone knows his name. No one knows her name. But they had one thing, one thing in common. They both desperately needed Jesus. Jairus, think about this. He has a 12-year-old daughter, the joy of his life, and she is deathly sick. But this woman, for 12 years, she has been living a kind of death, a death to dreams and, and to friendship and to real life for 12 years. In this story, if you think about it, what we are seeing, uh, among other things, is pictures of what keeps different kinds of, of people away from Jesus. Well, what keeps people like Jairus from coming to Jesus is usually Pride, feeling like like they don't need Jesus' help. And a lot of times, maybe you've had this happen to you. A lot of times, a tragedy, it takes a tragedy like this to, to get someone's attention. Maybe it is the death of a loved one, or maybe it's a job loss, or maybe it's a, like a terrible medical diagnosis. And through these things, God often works, doesn't he? To wake us up, to, to say to us, you really don't have it all. And I don't know, but maybe this is happening in someone's life right now. God has been shaking you. Maybe God has laid you out flat on your back so he can finally get you to start looking in the right direction. But what keeps people 
like this woman, by contrast, from coming to Jesus is different. Her, her shame has led her to despair. And it's not that she doesn't know she needs Jesus' help. She thinks that if Jesus knew the truth about her, he wouldn't help her. Remember how, how shame, shame can come from things that we've done or it can come from things done to us. And I think it's also interesting, this story gives us a glimpse into both of those things because in one sense, this woman, well, she's a victim. She didn't choose her disease. She's not suffering because of something she did. But at the same time, when you step back from the story, when you look at this story within the framework of the entire uh, biblical revelation, this woman is supposed to represent an uncleanness that all of us have from our sin. If you go back and look at the Levitical laws about uncleanness, those laws that are keeping this woman separated from society, those laws were given to Israel to help them to get a picture of the uncleanness that all of us have chosen in our sin, the uncleanness that is what leads to shame that is going all the way back in us, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And here's what we all need to see. Whether our shame results from choices that we ourselves have made or or whether our shame comes through no fault of our own because of what others have done or said to us, whatever the case may be, Jesus is the answer to our shame. Jesus is the answer to our shame. I want you to notice what happens next, verses 27 and 28. When she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now, it says she had heard about Jesus' healing power, about the miracles Jesus was was doing. And as she heard about those miracles, about Jesus' power in her hopelessness, she began to hope, maybe, maybe Jesus can heal me. But the problem is, she's unclean. She's not supposed to leave her house. She's not supposed to go out in public. If she does and people find out, they're going to be angry at her. They're going to revile her. They could possibly even stone her for her disobedience to the law. And so she wonders, is there a way, a way to like steal the miracle And so she somehow pulls her shawl over her head and and makes her way out into public. I think she must have kept looking down so no one would see her face. She gets to the crowd and begins to push her way through the crowd. And at some point, when Jesus passes by, she reaches out and she touches his cloak. Look at verses 29 and 30. Immediately, Her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, maybe when you hear that, you have the same thought that I have. It's like, does does Jesus not really know? I mean, if he's God, Uh, which we believe he is, and if he's able to do all the miracles that he's been doing, if you read about them earlier chapters of of the Gospel of Mark, and if he he actually has the power to heal this woman's disease like he just did, then he's got to know, right, who, who touched him. And I think he does. 
I think he does know. I think what's really happening is this. He wants this woman to identify herself. And so the question is, why? Well, I think Jesus is saying, and it's actually very wonderful. I think Jesus is saying, I want you to identify yourself because I have something even more amazing for you than the healing you just received. Look at verse 31. You see the people crowding against you, the disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me. The disciples are always a little thick. You notice that, right? And you should also notice every time you think the disciples are kind of thick that the revelation in the Bible is meant to point out to you that you're just like them. So the disciples don't get it. Why is Jesus asking Verses 32 and 33 say, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him, what are those last three words? The whole truth. See, all she wanted was to like steal her miracle and go home. The last thing she wanted was to be exposed in public and humiliated before everybody and be rejected again, especially especially by a famous rabbi. But Jesus wants her to face the truth, and it's the whole truth. Now, why, why does Mark put it this way? Well, the answer is, If she responds to Jesus, she can't just tell him what she did, touching his cloak. She has to tell him why she did it. And that means she has to tell her story. And that means she has to tell about her shame. Jesus wants her to tell the whole truth. She has to come out and before other people be open and honest, not just about her sickness, but also about her shame. That means she has to explain to these people that she has been in their midst. I mean, an unclean person, she's not supposed to do that and that she had pushed through all of them and that she had on top of this gone and and she had actually touched a holy man's clothes as an unclean woman. She has to tell the whole truth and that is why she's, trembling with fear, but that is exactly what Jesus wanted. He, he wants her to face her shame so that he can heal it. What happens next might be the most profound moment in the Gospels because it answers the most basic question of life, and that is this, what is it like to be exposed in all of our shame and our sin, our ugliness, our, our messiness, to be exposed before a holy God. What's it like? Verse 34 tells us, Jesus said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you feel it? 
Jesus doesn't call her madam or sister or friend. He calls her daughter. Daughter. One commentator says that we should understand Jesus to be saying something like sweetheart or darling. And here's the thing you need to know. It's the only place in all of the four gospels where Jesus addresses someone like this. It's exactly the word you would never use to address someone you just met, right? I mean, if you don't believe me, I just want to encourage you after you leave today and you go to a store somewhere, walk up, if you're a guy, walk up to a woman you've never met and call her sweetheart and see what happens, right? It, 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 it's, not, it's not a good idea unless you're Jesus, unless you're Jesus. I mean, just think about what's happening here. The woman nobody wanted. Here's Jesus, God's son. Call her precious sweetheart. The woman no one would touch is now being embraced by the arms that shape the stars. The name nobody else knows. Jesus knows. And do not miss the contrast that is all through every line of this story. Jairus is this dad who's pleading the cause of his 12-year-old daughter before Jesus. But for 12 years, this woman has had no father to plead her cause. And so Jesus pleads it for her. And he won't let her, you, you know, just like steal a miracle in secret because as much as he wants to heal her and as great as that is, he also wants her to know the even greater thing and that that is this, that she is loved, that she is accepted, that she is cherished. And that's what Jesus wants to do with everyone who struggles with shame. He meets us in our pain. He calls us sons and he calls us daughters. He lifts our heads when we cannot lift our heads for ourselves. That's what he wants to do for you. There's something else going on in this story that I think we could easily miss today. And back then it would have been instantly obvious to everyone who heard the story They would have immediately thought about this. In this story, what happens, again, is this this ceremonially unclean woman touches a clean man, and not just a clean man, but a holy man, and that was unheard of. You did not do that. And again, we can understand it if we put ourselves back there by thinking like this. What typically happens when an unclean thing touches a clean thing? Well, the the clean thing doesn't make the unclean thing clean, right? The unclean thing makes the clean thing unclean. Maybe this will help you. Think about it in terms of a virus, right? That's all we've been thinking about for a couple years, about a virus. I mean, what happens if a sick person with a virus comes in close contact with a healthy person? Well, We know the healthy person's health doesn't transfer to the sick person. If anything transfers, it's the sick person who makes the healthy person sick, right? 
I mean, just put it to today here at our church on our campus. Parents don't say, you know, my kid has been thrown up all weekend, all weekend. I think I'm gonna take my kid to church and I'm gonna put my kid in the nursery where all the healthy kids are and hope maybe that their health will rub off on my kid, right? I mean, if you think like that, there's a lot of other churches in Tracy we would invite you (laughs) to like go to, correct? See, when unclean things touch clean things, clean things become unclean, but not here. Not with Jesus. See, with Jesus, when the unclean thing touches the clean thing, the unclean thing, clean thing becomes clean. And so, here's the million-dollar question. What happened to the uncleanness? It's a question that's really being asked all through the Gospels. And the answer is this, though you cannot see it, Jesus silently takes this woman's uncleanness into himself. See, if you read through Mark's Gospel, you know that in a couple of chapters from where we are right now, Mark is going to to tell us as his readers that Jesus is turning his attention towards Jerusalem. He's about to head to the cross where he's going to die where he's going to pay the penalty for the sins of the world, where he's going to hang in front of everybody in shame to be forsaken by his father. Maybe you remember the scene from that movie, Green Mile, where this prisoner has the power to heal, but he he only can heal by, by taking people's sickness into himself. Well, Jesus removes our shame the shame that comes from our sin by taking it into himself. And so to those whose shame comes from something you have done, Jesus offers to you cleansing through his substitutionary death on the cross. He went to a cross for you so that you could go home in peace. And when you reach out and you touch Jesus in faith, he absorbs into himself the guilt of your sin like this woman's disease and uncleanness passed into Jesus and his righteousness and his new life, it passes into you. And when he does that, he calls you by a new name, son or daughter. He brings you into his family by his grace, grace, redefines failure and makes you part of the family. That's what Jesus does for you. So you are no longer what you have done. You are who Jesus says that you are. And if on the other hand, your shame comes from things that have done, been done to you, the same reality is for you. Your, your new identity as Jesus' daughter or son, that outweighs any other identity that any other person has ever, at any time in your life, ever tried to put on you. You are who Jesus said you are. You are not what others have said about you. You are not what others have done to you. You are who and what Jesus has declared over you 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 know right now some of us are in a sense probably kind of hiding in the crowd maybe wondering what it would be like to have our shame exposed before Jesus and I want you to hear this he is calling you daughter 
He is calling you son. He is inviting you into his family and he wants you to know that you are not damaged. You're not unworthy. You are not loved. You are a precious and loved child who he has created and he has redeemed for his purposes and for his glory. Think about it. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, you are precious enough to him that he died on the cross to redeem your life, to make you a part of his family. He has put his spirit inside of you and he has destined you as his child to rule and reign with him forever. You know, one day the the book of Hebrews says he's gonna put you on a throne higher than all of the angels and all creation is gonna shake their heads and wonder at the love that God has bestowed on you and at the honor and the esteem with which the God of the universe holds you. That's gonna happen if you are in Jesus. And today, it is time Today it is time that the shame that that others have, have put on you gives way to the honor that God through his son Jesus has declared over you. This woman, she went home in peace and you can too. And so I just wanna encourage you as you hear this story, stop listening to other voices. Stop listening to the voices in your head. Stop listening to the voice of your, your past. Start listening to Jesus. Start listening to Jesus. So what does all this mean for those who are stuck in shame? If you're suffering with shame right now, if you're, you're grappling with this today, what does it mean for you? Well, Christian counselors say that people who are, are struggling with shame need three things to be healed, and they're all right here in this story. First, and you can write this down, we need to come out of hiding. We need to come out of hiding. You, you have to come out of the shadows like this woman because shame thrives in secrecy. Have you noticed that? You have to take the chance of exposing yourself. And here's the reality. Most of the people around you, they, they love you and they will be glad when you come out of hiding, that they want to help you. You're gonna be surprised at the compassion that, that meets you and you can know that Jesus is ready no matter what to meet you. Brene Brown um, calls it speaking your shame. And she talks about how, how verbalizing shame takes away shame's secret power. So maybe today you're someone and you need to tell someone else for the first time about past abuse. Maybe, maybe you need to talk about the words or the insults that you have endured from other people and how they brought you shame. Maybe, maybe you need to talk to someone about that diagnosis of infertility, how that, that makes you feel. Whatever it is, you need to verbalize those feelings of shame, whether they're self-doubt or insecurities that come from disabilities, those secret fears that you have about something in your life. Maybe... Maybe you need to be honest about some temptations that you're dealing with, about an attraction that you don't know how to process. You know, there are, are people here 
who experience things like same-sex attraction and they don't know what to do with it and maybe that's you and, and you feel shame, I wanna say to all of us, the church should be the one place where it is the most safe to talk about things like that. See, as followers of Christ, we of all people should understand the gospel truth that we are all broken, amen? And we should know and we should live in the reality that Jesus only comes for broken people. And the reason Jesus only comes for broken people is that's the only kind of people there are. We should know that and we should see that and we should live that and we should express that to other people. And so if you're here and maybe you, you have a secret sin to confess or a, a prolonged addiction that you just can't a shake and you're thinking right now if they only knew they would walk away they would reject me maybe you think that because you have been rejected and my prayer is that you won't experience anything like that at, at this church and I can tell you with with utter confidence you will never experience that with Jesus because Jesus never walks away see like this woman Jesus is calling you. He is calling you to speak your shame, to come out of hiding. He's calling you to begin to receive his healing. Second, we need to receive Jesus' acceptance. You know, in this story, you, you notice Jesus takes the initiative and he accepts this woman. He pronounces his acceptance over her. He, in essence, raises her head even before she can raise it. You know, she's still looking down at the ground, avoiding his gaze. She's looking in fear and in shame. And he, looks, he says essentially to her, look up at me, precious daughter. Psalm 3.3 calls God the, the lifter of my head. See, when we couldn't lift our heads, God, in his grace, lifted our heads for us. See, this is what the gospel tells us, and I hope you understand it. And if you don't, I hope you will begin to grasp it. The power of new life always begins with a new identity. This is what separates Jesus' message, the gospel, from every other religion. Do you realize every other religion in this world says essentially the same thing? All the religions say change. They say, do better. They say, be better. And then, you know, you'll become a good person. And then God will accept you. But the gospel says, no. The gospel flips that upside down. God declares you righteous in Christ as a gift of his grace. And he gives you an identity that you do not deserve. And then, then you change out of gratitude for his grace. So you should beware of any spiritual growth strategies that do not make the gospel central. They are not from God. And this is so important about this matter we're talking about here. I wanna, I wanna say something to you that's so important. Many people assume, and many of you probably do too, that, that whenever they feel bad about their sin, it must be the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing, and the Bible tells us this, Satan also loves to talk to you about your sin. Have you noticed that? 
He has called, Revelation 12, 10, the accuser of the brethren. He will talk to you about your sin day and night if you let him. But there is a distinct difference in how Satan and the Holy Spirit talk to you about your sin. You see, when Satan talks, he starts with what you've done and he tears down who you are. He starts with your guilt and he turns your guilt into shame. Notice uh, you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew and you read about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Three times Satan comes to Jesus, God's son, and tempts him. And do you remember what he begins the temptation with every single time? Every single time he says the same thing. He says what? If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. And this happens for a reason. It happens right after the father has declared over Jesus at Jesus' baptism, you are my beloved son. So Satan's strategy was to come and to try to tear down the identity that Jesus had in his father. And it's what he does with us as well. He will say it to you. And you've heard this. He's gonna ask you, are you really... A child of God? Really? <laughs> Seriously? Are you really a child of God? No. You're a failure. You're a liar. You are sick. You are dirty. You are unworthy. He's going to say these kinds of things to you. He's going to call you damaged goods. And he does it the same way all the time. He starts with what you did, which is guilt, and he tears down who you are, and that's shame. See, the Holy Spirit, by contrast, starts with who Christ has declared you to be, and he rebuilds you from what you did. In other words, he addresses your sin. He, he, he addresses your sin, and he shows you how it is inconsistent with your new identity, and then he helps you in the repair work that the damage has, your sin has caused. And you have to know the difference. You have to know when it's the Holy Spirit and when it's Satan. See, Jesus, friends, Jesus didn't just die to free you from the penalty of your sin. He died to free you from the power of sin in your life presently. And Satan, Satan holds so many of us captive by getting us to believe that we are still something that God has declared that we are not. And he uses shame-based thinking to keep us under the power of sin. See, the only way, only way to ever heal from shame is for you to shift your focus. Shift your focus from what you've done, from who you are in your flesh, and shift your focus to who Christ is and what Christ says about you. That's the only way. Some of you really struggle with this, but you have to learn to say, I am not what others say I am. I am not who I sometimes think I am. I am definitely not what someone else did to me. I am not defective. I am not ugly. I am not damaged or broken or flawed. I am not dirty or impure. I am not disgusting, unlovable, pitiful, insignificant, or worthless. And I am definitely not unwanted who am i 
Well, I am who Christ says I am. Amen? I am who Christ says I am. I am forgiven. I am free. I am redeemed. I am healed. I am brand new. I am chosen. And I am changed. And I am blessed. And I am beloved. I am complete because I am a child of God. See, you are not what others have done to you. You are not what others have said about you. You are not what the voices inside your mind whisper about you. You are what Christ has declared over you. And so you need to receive Jesus' acceptance, amen? Finally, we have to choose to live in freedom. Notice again in verse 34, Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And I want you to see, Jesus doesn't say you are freed. He says, be freed. And you can hear it even in the English translation. This is a command. It's a command in the Greek text. Jesus is saying, okay, your faith has healed you. Now, here's what you've got to do. Now that you've been healed, go and be free from her suffering. Now, think about it. Why would he say that? Well, hasn't he always already freed her from her suffering? I mean, Mark actually says that earlier. Notice the language is the same earlier. Immediately after she touched his cloak, she knew that she was freed from her suffering. So why would Jesus say, be freed? And the answer is because he's not talking about her sickness. He's talking about her shame. He's talking about the cloud of shame that she has been living under because he knows that even though he has taken care of the cause of shame, she still has the potential to live under the cloud of shame. And so he says to her, do not do that. Choose to live in freedom. He says, I've taken care of the cause of shame in your life so you don't have to live under shame anymore. And this is something that I think many of us need to understand as well. You know, we're gonna have an election in a couple of days and, and some of us are gonna vote and so maybe you can think of it like this. We have to choose to say in our lives, yeah, yeah, I hear your voice, shame. I hear your voice. I know what you're saying, shame, but sorry, you don't get the final vote in how I live my life. And Jesus, when we do that, will set us free. We can choose to live in his freedom. And that freedom can come no matter what our shame has been. Whether it is shame because of sin that we have committed. Maybe for some of us it's sin that we have lived in for a very long time. Or whether it's shame because of something that has been done to us. Shame because of something that we had no control over. Whatever our shame is about wherever it comes from, Jesus offers us healing from shame. Will you choose in your life to walk free of that shame? Whatever it is, however long it's been there, Jesus has the power to heal your shame. I wanna ask you if you would to bow your heads and we're gonna take some time to pray as we think about what, what God is doing in our lives. And as your head is, is bowed, I wanna ask you a couple questions just for you to think about. The first one is, what's your condition? 
What's the source of the most shame for you? Have you identified it? Are you aware of it? And then the second question is, what step of faith is shame trying to talk you out of taking? Maybe it's just the step of being honest with someone. Maybe it's sharing with your life group or maybe it's getting involved in a life group so you have someone to share with. Maybe it's reaching out to a counselor for help. But what is the step? We we cannot allow shame to keep us from taking the step God is calling us to take. What would it look like for you to take it Would you be willing right now to ask God to give you the strength and the courage to give you whatever you need to take that step? Would you pray? Pray with me. Pray with all of us together. Father, as followers of your son, we we just want to thank you for this story from Jesus' life. We want to thank you for this woman, Lord. We don't know her name, but we see her courage and we, we learn from her example of, of hearing the voice of shame but refusing to give shame the final vote. Lord, we want to thank you so much for what we see Jesus do in response to our, her faith because, Lord, that gives us the confidence to know that any shame we're living under, that's not what you want for us. It's not how life needs to be. And, Lord, we can come out of hiding and receive your acceptance where we can choose to live in freedom. And so, Lord, as, as followers of Jesus, we ask that the power of your Holy Spirit would, would move in us and would show us those places where shame has a hold in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would give us courage through your Spirit to take the step of faith that you are putting on our hearts right now and to move forward, Lord, into what you have for us. Lord, you are our good and you only want what is good for us. And so, Lord, open our eyes to the lies that shame tells us so that we will see you, the truth, you, the life, you, the way. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. We're so grateful for his love for us. And so we lift, we lift our shame, Lord, to you in his name, the good name of Jesus. And all God's people together say, amen.